Welcome, everybody. You are watching School Psych Podcast. Um, tonight, we're here with Dr. Alfonso, and we're really excited. We are having a little bit of technical difficulties, so I'm going to ask you guys to let us know if when, when Eric speaks, if you're hearing Eric or not, um, so that would be helpful to us. Um, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland, um, and we might go out of order a little bit depending on um, Eric. Can you say something, Eric? Just so Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. So let us know if you can hear him. But um, I also wanted to, before we got started, just wanted to reiterate how awesome our field is. The way that I kind of got Dr. Afonso to join us tonight, I, I went up to him after a presentation at NASP and introduced myself, and I was like really super nervous. Oh, it looks like people can hear us. So hey, okay. I was super nervous and kind of was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him and went up to him and immediately like, kind of rambled and babbled as I typically do on, on the podcast, as you guys know, and lots of ums and ooh and, and, and um, was And so he was just kind of like, okay, wait, it's a podcast. They explained it a little bit more. He slowed me down and was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I was just like, oh, oh my goodness. And um, so it's just amazing how these kind of big names in our field will will acknowledge and and help help the little guy out, I guess, a little bit and, and give us a kind of black when we're babbling like like I am right now. So I'm super excited that he agreed to join us tonight. And right now I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca, who's gonna tell everybody how to participate. Rebecca? Yes, hello everybody. So I'm Rebecca, I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And um, the easiest way to participate if you are watching us live is to sign in to your Google account and to um, just comment next to the video screen. So I see a lot of you out there already. Hello, everybody, and thank you for being here. If you are watching um, the video later um, after the live broadcast or listening on iTunes, please log on to Facebook or um, Twitter. We have two Facebook pages, the School Site Podcast page and School Site your school psychologist. You can message me. You can comment under the post for this podcast. Um, and I'll be looking for notifications during the live broadcast there as well. And then on Twitter, using the hashtag psyched podcast. We hope the conversation will continue even after our live episode tonight. But we're really excited for those of you who can be with us here live. So thanks very much. And now I'm going to pass it on to Eric. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I'm Eric, and I am a school psychologist also in the state of Connecticut. We have a couple of things that we want to just announce really quickly uh, before we introduce Dr. Alfonso. Um, we have the privilege and honor of having Connecticut's School Psychologist of the Year with us. So I get to pass the torch on to Rebecca this year as Connecticut's School Psychologist of the Year. So I'm very excited uh, for her to receive that honor and award. Uh, I know Rachel is as well. So we celebrate that with you, Aww. Rebecca, and we're excited to see you receive your award on Wednesday at the state awards dinner. And we will hopefully do some video and uh, take some pictures and post those up to our Facebook page as well. So we're very excited. Congratulations, Rebecca. Thank you. So much. You're welcome. <laughs> Such an incredible amount of work and uh, give so much to the field. And we are all better school psychologists because of our connection to you. So we are grateful for you and we celebrate and honor the work that you're doing in the field. So I would also like to introduce Dr. Alfonso and I, I feel badly that he's unable to hear me. So um, 
But Dr. Alfonso um, is an esteemed professor, formerly of uh, the Graduate School of uh, Education at Fordham University in New York City. He is also the former Dean of the School of Education at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. And he is now a professor uh, at Gonzaga University. He received his master's in clinical and school psychology from Hofstra in 1987, and then later in 1990 received his PhD also in clinical and school psychology. He has research interests in assessment and treatment of preschoolers, psychoeducational assessment, life satisfaction and subjective well-being, professional training and stressful life events, social support and health. He's also co-editor of Essentials of Specific Learning Disability Identification and co-author of Essentials of Cross-Battery Assessment, third edition, and is the former president of Division 16, School Psychology of the American Psychological Association, is a certified school psychologist and licensed psychologist in New York State, and is a fellow of Division 5 and Division 15 of the ABA. So we welcome Dr. Alfonso, and uh, since he can't hear me, perhaps uh, Rachel or Rebecca can uh, pass on our first question to him. All right, so thank you for that introduction. You'll have to go and uh, listen to that at a later point when we don't have technical difficulties, Dr. Alfonso. But um, we have a couple questions tonight, but we, we would encourage viewers to uh, jump in with questions. We've kind of got a mixed bag of topics. Um, definitely gonna hit on SLD. But the first question that we wanted to throw out to you was just, so working in a training program, first in New York and then moving to Washington, correct? How, how do you see the differences in training programs and the differences in assessment of practices, SLD, all that fun stuff? Sure, well, first, um, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate um, uh, being here this evening. It is evening here as well on the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I'm always happy to help the field and speak. And of course, you know, uh, when we speak about our work, that makes us, you know, feel good. And we, we certainly want people to understand, uh, understand our work, understand it better. And hopefully that our work uh, continues to um, really help children and families, especially around developmental uh, disabilities. I'm not sure what Eric said about me because I, I couldn't <laughs> hear him, but uh, I do have a copy of what's written and okay. it's pretty accurate. The only uh, maybe one or two things that um, I'd like to just correct is, so last Friday, um, I returned to the, to the light side from the dark side of administration. I was the Dean of Education here at Gonzaga University for, for six years, um, having served at, uh, 19 years at Fordham University in New York as faculty and as an administrator. And, um, and not too long ago, I uh, became a fellow of uh, Division 43. And I was also, it was my honor to receive um, the Jack Barden uh, uh, Distinguished Service Award from, from Division 16. I'm not sure if that was in the, in the bio or not. Um, so coming from, from New York to, to Washington State, actually the two states are fairly similar in terms of assessment um, and SLD identification, or at least as far as, as I can tell, it's really not easy to get a straight answer about, uh, about assessment or SLD in, in any state. But when I came to Gonzaga, we did not have a school psychology program. Uh, we started our school psychology program uh, in September of 2018, we started with nine 
candidates in our EDS program. And this coming September, we'll have 18 additional students. So, you know, we're, we're really uh, feeling very good about that because in the state of Washington and actually in the West region of the United States, if you take the 13 states in the West region as designated by NASP, um, there are more school site programs in New York state than there are in uh, the 13 West states of, in this region, except for California. If you take out California, is definitely uh, more in New York. California has a fair number of programs, but there are no programs in the state of Hawaii, Alaska. I think um, even Idaho is either down to one or none. Montana has one. So in the state of Washington, there were four programs. Now there's five, uh, our program being the fifth. And I think, generally speaking, the state of Washington may be a little bit behind New York in terms of assessment and SLD identification. When I arrived, it was funny, when I arrived uh, in Washington, um, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Berninger, Virginia Berninger, was still working as a faculty member at, at the University of Washington. She basically told everyone uh, in the state that I was coming. And so... Um, I had emails and uh, voicemails before I even arrived on the job asking me about SLD assessment questions and so on. So I did help with uh, Washington State's um, guidelines, if you, would, if you will, for SLD identification. But there's a, a lot of work going on right now uh, in SLD identification in the state of Washington, really trying to, I guess, curtail or limit the um, "Quote unquote," you know, aptitude achievement discrepancy method, and moving to other other methods, whether that's an RTI approach or a PSW approach. So, let's leave it at it's hot. It's really hot right now in Washington. The whole SLD identification question and different methods, and it, but it's still hot back in New York. I, I'm still very close with my friends at the New York um, uh, New York Association of School Psychologists, and it's really kind of a a uh, pretty, um, you know, uh, topic that's on everybody's minds if you're a school psychologist uh, in the United States. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm. You mentioned that both New York and mm -hmm. Washington have similar. Um, um, it, they're similar in training programs and in methods of identification. Uh, what? Specifically, does the program at Gonzaga, Gonzaga, sorry, okay. um, focus on? It does exist. Ask Jimmy Kimmel; he'll tell you that it exists. Yes, I have heard of it. I'm, I am just uh, nervous to to be here with you. Actually, if I'm honest, don't don't be. It's overrated. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Um, so the the question that we were um, thinking of having you address mm -hmm. at this point is what what of in your training program what kinds of assessment do you focus on? So when we were designing uh, our program here, we really wanted to focus uh, or we wanted the program to be um, really a, a have a leadership focus to it. So. Uh, because we believe that school psychologists should be leaders in the educational settings and school settings. And so we really try to um, embed in our coursework uh, courses that come from our leadership uh, program, come from our special ed programs, 
um, as well as uh, teacher ed and counselor ed. So we really kind of put a, um, a program together that had expertise and content from, from our colleagues here in the school. In terms of assessment per se, well, you know, with me here, um, we are going to, you know, we are going to focus on standardized norm referenced instruments, um, you know, for assessment, but we also do, you know, all kinds of assessment techniques and we really function or advocate a multi, you know, multi-method, multi-source, multi-setting approach to assessment. We don't equate assessment with, um, we don't uh, equate assessment with testing. So assessment is much broader uh, for us, but we also, um, we also are teaching, you know, MTSS uh, as well as, uh, if you will, like rating scales, interview techniques, and, uh, you know, um, you know, a bunch of other, you know, techniques. We, we believe that, again, it really takes a multi-source, multi-method approach to answer questions in the best way possible that would help the student and, um, and the family. Um, we will probably, you know, as we're just getting started, we'll, we'll probably emphasize PSW for the most part. But again, um, I'm a very, very big believer in universal screening. I'm a big believer in early intervention. Um, so, you know, myself and, and my colleagues, we come from a camp where we don't believe that, you know, any one method or any, any one way is the be all end all and that you really have to take into a lot of a lot of variables into consideration when you're determining what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Um, and it's incumbent upon us as professionals to answer the questions and try and help the, the, the folks who've come to us for that help. For sure, awesome. That sounds good. I'll try to chime in with a and question. And feel free to derail me Take me in any direction you want. I, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'll go wherever you want me to go. We're good. Yeah, I just uh, put a I put a message up to our chat over here that that people you know need to ask questions. Otherwise, they're stuck with whatever we're going to ask. So right, right. <laughs> Eric, I know you wanted to chime in. Can you chime in and we can relay what you wanted to say? Sure. <laughs> or he well, can type. I can read it. I can see his. Oh, that's um, true. Um, so whatever he wants. The. Um, Getting to work with Virginia Berninger is amazing. She's done a lot with uh, phonological loop and ortho orthography. So it kind of leads into the question that I had written down was um, the work with uh, mm. Dr. Kilpatrick and the video from Ventura County. I don't know if you want to just read that, Rachel. And sure. um, Yeah, so, um, yeah, we were... Um, we are we're aware of on YouTube, Dr. Alfonso, that um, there's a video from Ventura County. Oh yeah, giving a, you know, so everybody needs to go check that out. Um, but talking about CHC factors and reading, and you referenced Dr. Kilpatrick, who we have had on the program, and we're you know enthused to have that discussion with him as well. How has Dr. Kilpatrick's work kind of influenced your work, or is it is that he's giving things that? Um, you know, you guys were already aware of. I know that there's kind of this huge research to practice gap with, especially with reading. And so a lot of time, you know, when, when his book came out, it was kind of eye-opening for a lot of us that, oh my goodness, you know, we didn't know about all this stuff. So how has that book influenced where you've gone with things? Or is that something that you were already trying to communicate? 
Um, I think um, all of the above. I, I think, I mean, we knew David from years ago before, um, before he published the book. And in fact, uh, were, I think, fairly instrumental in him getting a contract to, to write that book and publish that book. Um, I think what he, you know, what he's done is fantastic. He's really, you know, uh, gone down deep into, you know, the process of reading or how kids learn how to read and, and what's important and how to work with them and so on. I don't believe that um, that some of our instruments today that we use on a regular basis uh, really get into the nitty gritty as much as uh, David David's work suggests that we should. But um, but we have always been a big uh, big proponent of phonological processing or phonological awareness, phonics, phonetic coding as being foundational for you know reading skills. But it's not the only um, skill or process that needs to be assessed um, for, with young children who are beginning to learn how to read. There are other factors that are important. Um, and, you know, there are students, there are children, students who do perfectly well on, on a phonetic coding uh, test or instrument and yet still have difficulties reading. So, you know, I think, I think all of the disabilities, if you will, or IDEA areas are not, they're not that easy to address or to assess. I think David's book has really put out there um, a lot of information for people to soak, to soak in. Um, and my hope is that as his work progresses and his research becomes more, um, you know, gets out there more that some of the folks who are developing tests and instruments can incorporate that that research into into their uh, into their materials so that we can all you know learn more from it. Um, but I think what he's done the most is really brought to the forefront that the complexity of of learning any academic area or academic subject matter in this case reading, which is what we know the most about. Um, we still have a long long way to go when it comes to writing and mathematics um, and even reading comprehension. Most of our work, our research, um, and much of the writing has been, uh, you know, really focused on basic reading skills, which, and that's very important, but we need to go uh, much further than that or beyond that. Yeah, Dr. Alfonso, we have a um, great viewer question that I wanted to throw uh, in. Um, Sue says that a new law in Arizona will require us to screen for dyslexia in the younger grades starting next year. Right now, they give the standard dibbles battery K through three. Do you recommend anything different? Um, I think I think dibbles is great to use. Um, I think that probably need to use a couple of different, you know methods, if you will, or different materials to to assess for that. Um, as far as I know and I'm concerned, dyslexia is still basic reading disability. It's it's a reading disability. I, I don't know exactly why socially and politically it's it's kind of blown up again as uh, something new and different than than it's ever been. But um, but I am happy to hear that uh, that some states or at least are thinking that we should be screening for dyslexia. Um, but if we were doing universal screening in general, we'd probably be able to pick that up as well. I think one of the um, one of the things that we don't do well uh, when we're working with uh, students suspected of having a reading disability is that we don't listen to them read. 
um, very, you know, it's, it's amazing to me um, that we don't ask the student to read for us so that we can hear prosody and volume and tone and pitch and, uh, you know, and how they struggle and how they, uh, how they perhaps self-correct, auto-correct or don't, don't do that or don't even notice, you know, what's missing. Um, I do believe that if it's going to be screening for dyslexia, actually doing any kind of screening um, in terms of academics really should be a team approach. And I think that uh, speech language pathologists should probably be involved in, in that as well. Um, uh, school psychologists, and if there is a learning, uh, you know, learning disability specialist or reading specialist in the district probably should be involved um, also. Um, you know, there should be, uh, you know, basic, I guess, psychological, you know, assessment methods, you know, interviewing, observing, talking to parents, uh, learning if there's any history uh, out there. And also, like I said, listening to the to the student, you know, either name letters, sing the alphabet, um, you know, read simple words, um, and so on, uh, to get a good sense. And I think that even you know, the process of screening should be to distill who, who are the students who are seemingly have some difficulty so that, that we can work with them more directly and more intensely. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to have a difficulty later on. And it also doesn't mean that we didn't miss some people in the original, you know, screening as well. So I think, you know, screening, monitoring, uh, screening, evaluating, monitoring, and doing that in a cyclical nature in the first few grades is probably a very prudent thing to do if we want to uh, avoid students having difficulties later on. That makes sense to me. Um, I think, and uh, Serena, if I am not speaking your question well, please comment. But we had a question from Serena, and she she said that she feels strongly that licensed professionals work it, should work in their area of expertise. So, um, so that psychologists, for example, should be able to complete medical statements for related diagnoses. Um, anxiety, depression, et cetera. And she wonders what you think about that and how yeah. we can best advocate for that in our states. Yeah, so I, I mean, <clears throat> I've always been an advocate of, you know, school psychologists being able to assess for um, autism, autism, autistic spectrum disorders, um, you know, anxiety, depression as related, you know, related to academic functioning or even social functioning in the schools. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. And uh, I, I think that, you know, perhaps our national organizations need to advocate for school psychologists being able to do that work. Um, I, I mean, I encountered it too, you know, with ADHD and and some, but we're like the behavior specialists, right? So we should, you know, we should be, not should, we, we are able to um, to assess for attention and uh, attention problems, attention difficulties, hyperactivity, um, anxiety, especially as it's related to academic functioning and academic performance or interpersonal and social uh, and so on. Um, so I feel very strongly about that. Um, but I think if I'm not mistaken, I think, you know, the state's different in terms of you know, who they allow to do what and what kinds of classifications and diagnoses. It's a lot of gray area. I mean, in IDEA, I think there's still 13, you know, classifying conditions. 
And um, there are some there that I, some of those conditions that some folks believe aren't in the purview of, you know, school psychologists, but it is, it is IDEA, right? And it does pertain to schools and to educational settings. So it's a thorny issue. And I think um, it really kind of depends on where you, where you work and practice as to what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. But I would, I, if I'm a school psychologist working in schools, you know, I'm going to be very uh, opinionated and have a very strong opinion that when it comes to learning and behavior problems, you know, we're experts. Not that we know everything. We should work with uh, folks from other professions, but we do have our areas of expertise and we should be looked upon to share that that knowledge. Very cool. Serena says bravo. She liked your answer a lot. And, <laughs> and I concur. Um, you know, I worked in, uh, I've worked in a couple different states. And when I moved to Maryland, that was the first state that I was in that we had the ability to identify ADHD. So that was a little bit new to me initially. I was a little bit uneasy about it. But once, mm-hmm. you know, I got into it, I was like, yeah, I can, I can do this. This is okay. And in fact, I think that we do it a lot better than some outside practitioner who maybe sees the child briefly in a kind Absolutely. of a political setting when we can see them in the classroom in kind of the natural environment. So well, I spe- I yeah. And I agree, especially with that disorder, because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's supposed to be across different settings and, so, you know, if, if it's an outside person who's doing the evaluation who may be, you know, completely competent in that area, but not seeing, you have to see the kid in school. I mean, if you don't see the kid in school, then I don't know, you know, that you can really move in that direction, you know, and I'd say that about, you know, many of our um, classifications, you know, you really have to see the child in the educational setting and the younger the student, right? So I used to work with um the most fun in my life was when I was working in pre, uh, preschools, you know, in preschool educational settings for children with disabilities. I mean, it was just, you know, so, so rewarding and so much fun, but, you know, they behave differently, you know, in the same room, five feet, you know, away. So um, when you're working with young children, observing them in multiple settings is absolutely critical. Um, because they behave very differently. And so I think it's the the uh, accumulation of information. And then you can't put that into a formula. So, you know, you got to use your head and you got thinking matters. I said this recently at a, at a conference, um, thinking matters. And it's a, it's a double meaning, right? So, um, and that's what we get paid to do. We get paid to think, you know? So I, I think that we should be um, tapped for that, that area of expertise. Very cool. And it looks like Corey's sharing an, another viewer that um, it's new to Arizona this year that they can sign off on ADHD. So, yay. That's good. All stuff. right. Progress <laughs> is possible. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about cross-battery assessment, uh, the XBAS sure. and whatnot, um, just because a lot of people know you specifically from, from those books. Um, so tell us a little bit about maybe some of the changes or the approach or the, how maybe things have changed more recently. Yeah. So thank you for, for asking about that. I mean, it's been a, it's been a, a programmatic area of study for myself and my colleagues for, you know, like 25 years now, or maybe more. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a child for us, you know, raising a child and, and kind of, uh, you know, growing with the changes and trying to make, uh, you know, adapt it so to, uh, feedback from practitioners in particular, but also from the research 
you know, research as well, trying to make it, um, you know, more understandable, more, not necessarily simpler, because we don't think simpler is better, um, but more understandable, more efficient, um, and, uh, and more, you know, just more comprehensible, I think, and comprehensive. So it's tra- changed, sorry, dramatically. I mean, I remember back in when I, you know, was in New York and working with uh, Don Flanagan at the time and, you know, on these hand handwritten like worksheets and, and averaging and uh, all kinds of craziness, you know, it was almost like the Stone Age back then. It was like, you know, hieroglyphics or something. And now, you know, we use Excel. We, we've been trying to get online to have XBAS online, you know, quite bluntly, we've run into some snags there, but um, we're still intent on doing that. We will be releasing another Excel version of XBAS. Hopefully in the very near future, it'll be uh, version 2.3. It will have new tests, um, uh, 16 new batteries and probably close to another 100 subtests uh, embedded in it. In it. Um, it it will have, if it doesn't, uh, I think even the current version out there has um, as a quick uh, a PSW quick analysis um, for those uh, advanced folks who want to use that, and um, and we I think if we've made the changes we've made, we've really tried to introduce flexibility in the approach without sacrificing what we believe is the integrity and this and the psychological and psychometric foundations of the method. Um, but we received feedback, you know, from folks over the years saying, well, you know, when there's a score of, of this magnitude, the program says, you know, we'll no longer do any analysis, you know. Um, and so we've really tried to put that, uh, the decision making, as much of the decision making into the hands of the practitioner, because we believe it's the practitioner, clinician, school psychologist who knows the client the best. and. You know, there's there's a lot of murky area there. There's a lot of gray area. That's why you know we people psychologists need to be you know need to be doing this work. Not not psychometrists. Sorry, but you know anyone can give a test and score it, but it takes somebody who's got the training, expertise, education um, to interpret findings. And that's not just standardized normal tests. We never ever say and never have said that to that the only instruments to use are standardized norm reference instruments. We've never said that. Um, you know, it's 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 not so important uh, as uh, how you collect the information, but what information you collect. So, you know, it could be from cons- consultation with a teacher, a parent, or another professional in the school. It could be. How about this one for a novel idea? How about asking the, the student, <laughs> you know, like what gives you problems? What what are your difficulties? What do you like? What's easier for you? How do you approach problems? Interviewing, you know, the student. Um, I don't think we do enough of that in our training programs on how to integrate information and data. Um, so we're it, it, kind of like the summary points are that we're trying to make XBAS uh, simpler to to understand um, a little bit more efficient in use, flexible in its use, and trying to keep up with the literature and the research, you know. So, um, in particular, CHC theory has been a lot of changes to the theory recently. 
Uh, a big one is that GLR, long-term storage and retrieval, um, is now divided into GL and to GR. And we're trying to make those changes in, in XBAS. There are other changes as well. And there's a lot of research that, that's coming out about the relations between certain cognitive um, uh, cognitive processes and cognitive abilities and academic functioning. Uh, so we're trying to, you know, incorporate that. What we what we will not do and never do as far as the the authors are concerned is take the clinician out of the equation. So, you know, we don't want to make decisions for the for the clinician. We also don't want the program to make decisions either. The program is a guide. It's a tool. Um, but, you know, as uh, as one of our other mentors, you know, Alan Kaufman, you know, used to say, you know, you got to be you got to be the scientist and you, you have to be uh, um, do intelligent, intelligent testing, um, you know, to to answer questions. And my final comment is just that, um, you know, a disability such as a learning disability is so idiographic. It's so it's almost idiosyncratic. Right. So 10 students could have a, a basic reading disability, but they manifest that in 10 different ways. And they've got, you know, different strengths and weaknesses, different, um, uh, you know, personality characteristics, et cetera. And it's never going to change. I mean, it's always going to be individual, individually based, but, but informed by the science and the research that's done, let's say, on, on the group level. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but. Yeah, that was good. And I like what you're saying um, about, you know, disabilities manifesting so differently because we're restricted to these kind of 13 categories. But I mean, yeah. there's such a broad range within that. I, uh, I made the mistake on Twitter a little while ago of saying something along the lines um, that I didn't think the term dyslexia was overly helpful. And what I meant by that, you know, it's Twitter. So you get kind of this little snapshot. But what I meant was that it's a bit broad and it doesn't really show exactly where because you could have you know a hundred different kids with that diagnosis and with a you know a hundred different deficits um in there and so that's what i meant but I, I had some some backlash on twitter that you know oh you're you're saying it doesn't exist that dyslexia is not real that it's not helpful and and hashtag say dyslexia and i was like no that's not i'm not trying to <laughs> right it, it's broad you know all these categories are broad they are they are. And, you know, think about it. We understand the most about basic reading difficulties. What about all the other areas? Mm -hmm. so. For sure. Um, we had a viewer question from Sue, too, and I'm going to read it off. Um, let's see. I wonder if Dr. Afonso has heard about hashtag scatter doesn't matter and his thoughts on some recent research that questions the entire PSW process, not just XBA or XS. Um, you know, we've talked on the podcast to Dr. McGill and Dr. Canavan and Dr. Burns and some of the other people that um, are kind of against the profile analysis. So, what what are your take? What yeah. is your take on that? Have you heard of that hashtag? I don't know. Hashtag, you know, scattered uh, doesn't matter. Um, there's a, an excellent chapter in. Um, Alan Kaufman and Susie Rayford, their book, it's, it's, it was like the last book that he, he wrote on the Wexford scales. I think it's Intelligent Testing with the WISC-5. The whole chapter, the question is to scatter matter. Um, and, you know, I think it does matter. I think it depends on where it is, how it's evaluated, how, where it is. 
and then trying to see what you know um, its meaningfulness or or how it's linked. Um, I I don't really subscribe to to profile analysis in the traditional sense. So, for example, you know when I was a grad student um, and learned about some uh, some profiles and in, in particular something called the acid profile um, and, or a SCAD profile, and they were um, acronyms for subtests from uh, various Wechsler scales. And if students, you know, perform poorly on the subtests, you know, that, that made up that, com that composite, then, uh, you know, there was some evidence perhaps of some kind of disorder. Um, we don't do that. We're not, we don't look in, into that kind of a profile analysis. We do look into, however, strengths, a profile, if you will, of strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, I know there are a lot of critics out there of PSW, as there are of RTI and aptitude achievement discrepancy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we really, if we knew well what a learning disability is, then we wouldn't be having these conversations and discussions. Um, there wouldn't be so much controversy out there. I mean, maybe there are people who believe they know exactly what a learning disability is and how to evaluate it or how to identify it. Um, I don't think we do. So, so when I when I look at research, read research, whether it's critical or supportive, you know, isn't necessarily what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what's the what's the rigor of the methodology? What was the thinking that went behind it? And um, how do you know that somebody has a true learning disability or not? I, I just I don't know that we've mm -hmm. we know that. I think it's. It's much easier, it's not easy, but it's much easier to, um, to evaluate for, identify intellectual disability or maybe even giftedness um, because we have some clear cut criteria there. Uh, and, um, you know, but when it comes to learning disabilities, I mean, there's nothing clear cut about it as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. So it, it's hard for me to, you know, really, um, I don't know, Except the 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 results of some of these research studies that come out there, because I don't know that anybody knows what a learning disability is. So how do you know one method's better or right, correct than another? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that it's pretty easy to be critical and to criticize. I mean, we all do that. We learn that in school. We we learn it in um, research methodology and statistics courses, you know, how to criticize research to be, you know, to mm -hmm. be critical and everything. And, and that's fine. Research should be criticized. Um, it, it should be held held to, you know, um, highest levels and standards. But at the same time, um, it just seems like there's a lot of criticism without much recommendations for what to do and how to do it. And then show that whatever those suggestions are, that they're better than anything else that we have. You know, um, one of my, um, uh, another mentor was a person by the name of Colin Elliott. He was the test author of differential ability scales. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, this many, many years ago, I ran into, and I'm like, what's, you know, kind of what's all the hubbub about? Why, why the anti-testing, anti-cognitive assessment movement? He was pretty, you know, um, uh, clear about it. And he said he thought it was ideological differences, you know, and that because when you've got so you've got support for and against all methods, well, then it comes down to what do you believe in? What's kind of what's your belief mm -hmm. system? 
And, um, and that's all well and good. But I, one thing that drives me kind of crazy is righteous indignation <laughs> and people who believe that they know the truth and that they're right. And I think that there's a little bit of that going on. And I think that's troublesome and it's not helpful for the, for the field. I think that is the most it's like sane response to the <laughs> question that I've ever heard. I know. Yeah. Not, not bad for a kid from Brooklyn, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. Um, yeah. I I guess we're we're coming up uh, at the towards the end of our time, and if there was um, one question that I wanted to ask you as we wrap up, it might be as as the former the most recent former dean and department chair, um, how would you say that the major focus on the field has changed, um, let's say from a practitioner uh, to a university administrator? Would your department have sort of a, a specific focus that's changed or um, do you feel like we should have a specific focus that's um, different than before? Um. In terms of school psychology, or yeah, or I guess yeah, and 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 it's related broader um, place within education. I think there's been um, you know a fair number of inroads uh, over over the years, um, especially in terms of um, of you know interventions, early intervention and prevention, uh, you know, which are really my other you know, big areas of interest. And, you know, I mean, it never gets old. An ounce of prevention is, uh, you know, worth a pound of cure. And um, so I just think that the earlier we intervene, the better. Um, when we do screening um, for learning and behavior problems early on, but not just walk away, but actually then monitor those, you know, students and provide them with the with those early interventions, the better. I think one of the things that we've lost in education in general, uh, not just school psychology, but education in general, is, um, is the idea that uh, of individual differences, you know, and, um, you know, people are different <laughs> uh, and they, they, they have different strengths and weaknesses, whether they are ability, strengths and weaknesses, personality, other kinds of talents, you know, physical. Um, and we've kind of lost that. We've kind of put everybody into the same, you know, into the same bowl, if you will. And so we've moved away from vocational training um, significantly. And maybe that had to do with Nickleby, No Child Left Behind. I don't know. I think ESSA is a much better uh, re uh, uh, legislation. You know, Every Student Succeeds Act. I think it's much better than, than Nickleby was. But, but we've really moved away from, from vocational training. And if my understanding is correct, um, in our country, we are absolutely desperate for skilled laborers. And, you know, if, if you're a skilled laborer, you're going to make a hell of a lot more money, sorry, than school psychologists. <laughs> I mean, so if you're, if you're, you know, carpenter, plumber, electrician, mechanic, you know, I mean, you're going to be doing really well for a very long time because we don't. Um, we don't educate people in those areas anymore because we want everybody, you know, to have a college education. Don't get me wrong. I think college education is great, but it's not for everyone. And there are students who have, you know, great skill sets, but we try to force them, you know, you know, into a different box. 
than than what they're good at. And I think we should really tailor um, tailor their education towards what they what they're interested in, what they're good at, because then they're going to be you know really good contributors to society later on. Forcing them to have a high school diploma or a college degree that they won't even use. I don't know. I don't know how that benefits them or or society mm -hmm. down the road. So, yeah. Right. So that's just you know my my thinking. Um, you know, it's uh, we have some of the greatest potential, but we don't always use it, and um, I think that's a problem. But hopefully, we'll. There's a great book called uh, "Tinkering Towards Utopia." Um, it's about educational reform. And it's just a great title, Tinkering Towards Utopia, you know, little bits and pieces, one step at a time. And my other favorite line and quote that I gave as used to give as a dean when everybody was, you know, um, angry with me for one reason or another. But uh, it's perfect is the enemy of good. You know, there, there's we don't have to be perfect out of the chute. We need to be good and we need to get better. But we're not going to get better unless we kind of work together on solutions to problems rather than trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Yeah, wow. We have so many uh, viewers commenting with just um, agreements and- Oh, good. Right yeah. So what a beautiful way to end. And I love the summer reading suggestion. I hope <laughs> you all pick up that book and we can have a book talk about it when we come back in September. It's <laughs> my pleasure, anytime. We could do uh, we could do part two if you want at some point or uh, you know I don't know whatever you whatever you like I, I just want to be helpful and um, and um, you know share my share my thinking which is not right or wrong either it's just this is these are my uh, my thoughts um, over 25 years in the field. Awesome. Thank you so much for Thank taking the time you. to come with us. And, you know, you mentioned part two, so we're definitely going to send you. <laughs> we'll, we'll bug you. Okay. <laughs> Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. We have okay. some people in the chat box already interested in maybe some some early intervention. And, yeah, everybody's sounding off on what you had to say about, you know, um, college and trades and, and things like that. So we're all really excited to, to hear from you. But thank you again. And um, thank you to everybody who's been watching and enjoy your summer breaks. And um, congrats again to Rebecca and the award, uh, School Psych of the Year, Connecticut. So yes, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. And congratulations on your awards, Dr. Alfonso. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're really uh, grateful for this conversation. Good night, everybody. Good night.